0: welcome to the valley advocate podcast featuring interviews that take us deeper into the people and happenings on the local scene for more podcasts and a closer look at what's going on in the valley visit us at valleyadvocate.com
1: hello welcome to the valley advocate podcast my name is dave eisenstatter i'm the editor of the valley advocate and uh, this is a collaboration we do with amherst media i'm here today with uh dave daly uh, who has written a few pieces for us, a uh, former editor of Salon.com, and uh, and is here to talk about a few things, probably mostly about Richard Neal. Is that right?
0: Sounds good to me. Yeah, Thanks okay. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, well, um, can we just get right into uh, a few of the things? You did some really great uh, research into some of the campaign expenditures of Richard Neal, and I just wanted to hear about some of the research that you did and, and what you found.
0: Yeah, um, it was... Really interesting to me because there was a, a point earlier in the winter in which everybody was so excited about the new House of Representatives, all the new energy that was there, and I couldn't figure out why my representative, why my congressman right here in western Massachusetts was not doing proper oversight and going after Donald Trump's taxes. Um, why was he not holding hearings on the Green New Deal or Medicare for all? And so I started looking at his FEC reports um, and trying to figure out where his money came from, who his donors were, and what impact that was having on his policy. Um, And what I found was honestly shocking, even though I've spent most of my career writing about politics and often money in politics. The congressman has, since his re-election in November raised hundreds of thousands of dollars, seven figures, and he's done so from the biggest corporations and the most foul special interests you could imagine over the point of that time. Like, what are some examples of that? He is the number one Democrat in Congress when it comes to taking donations from Big Pharma. Yep. Uh, When it comes to taking donations from Wall Street and the financial services industries from the insurance companies, from big energy companies, 17 of the 30 corporations that, um, the, the wealthiest corporations in the country, 17 of the 30 that the New York Times identified as not paying a penny in federal taxes in 2018, and in some cases even getting a refund donated money to Richard Neal. Yeah,
1: what are some of those companies? And Richard Neal is
0: the chairman of the Tax Writing Ways and Means Commission. So it's not that they're giving him this money because they like his politics or they think he's a swell guy. They're getting something for it. And while they get something for it, all the rest of us are paying way more. It's not only that Neal is taking hundreds of thousands of dollars from all of these companies and blocking action on things that his constituents would like to see done. He is raising all of this money in five-star hotels around the country. He's going to food festivals in South Beach and dropping tens of thousands of dollars staying at the Ritz-Carlton. He's staying at all of these boutique hotels in New York City while he raises money there at some of the fanciest restaurants in the country. He's touring through wine country. And you're
1: you're seeing all that through FEC filings?
0: It's all in his FEC reports. It's... uh, you know, $6,000 spent at a Ritz-Carlton in Florida. And it's like, well, now I understand why he's not doing town halls in the district.
1: You had a, you had a great sort of narrative in one of your pieces about, uh, I think, an event. I don't know if you named it this or if it actually was called Richie Palooza. <laughs> I Is actually that? named it okay, that. So it's actually
0: called Congressman Richard Neal's Boston Weekend.
1: Okay, Boston Weekend. And, and the
0: congressman does two weekends like this, possibly three every year, he does a Boston weekend for his supporters in late November and December, and it's a two-day affair in Boston, um, and the first night, it tends to be a very expensive dinner at Legal Harborside, where every single wine that's on the list is exclusive to Legal Harborside in the entire state of Massachusetts, um, and then the next night, they go to the, to the symphony, or they go to a Celtics game in a private box. This year, it was a Celtics game. Neil spends tens of thousands of dollars at legal, at the Celtics game. He buys thousands of dollars in gifts at the Capital Gift Shop for all of these donors. And to get
1: a ticket to... $2,500. Twenty five hundred bucks. Yeah, so, uh, so he is still the, making
0: plenty of money on which of goes this. right
1: into the the campaign fund. Is that is that it correct? It goes right yeah. into the
0: campaign fund. Um, and if you want to attend his Cape Cod weekend, because who wouldn't want to see the congressman in a speedo? Um, <laughs> uh, that's five thousand dollars, <laughs> um, and you get you know a lovely weekend in Chatham. Um, if you want his New York weekend, they don't do that one as often, but uh, that seems to be you know, a lovely $2,500 ticket as well. Um, so this is why the Congressman is one of the few members in all of the House who is yet to hold a town hall in his district during the session mm. of Congress. So if you want to tell the Congressman what y- you think about his fundraising or about the uh, carve out he gave a TurboTax and H&R Block that you know uh, uh, kept you paying hundreds of dollars to do t- t- do your taxes on uh, on a nice uh, spring weekend in April while he gave a big giveaway to a company that gives him tens of thousands of dollars. If you want to know why he's the only member of the delegation uh, who has not signed on to the uh, Green New Deal, well, I hope you are staying at a Ritz-Carlton sometime soon or at, you know, a private box in the Celtics game, and I hope you bring your checkbook because that's the only way you will have your voice heard.
1: Yeah, I... I um... You know, I think I think one of the interesting things about um, Richard Neal now is that I think nationally he's getting well known where he wasn't before, even though he had been a longtime congressman, as the person who was, who was going after Trump's tax returns. And in some in some ways it's kind of he's he's being seen as this sort of um, hero in some ways. That he's he's the one who's making the ask, he's asking for Trump's tax returns after so many people had, you know, not been able to go after them.
0: Well, here's what I would say to that. I would say that the congressman has slow walked his request for, for the Trump taxes at every single step of the way, and that he has taken the slowest route to actually receiving those taxes that you could possibly imagine. He is in a war essentially of sternly worded letters that are running out the clock on actually getting those taxes ahead of the 2020 election. The congressman essentially was returned to his seat when he won a primary last September. He had no opposition in November. Um, It was relatively clear that the Democrats were going to take over the House of Representatives. If the congressman was serious about going after Trump's taxes, he could have started the first week of September in, in 2018 pulling together the legal arguments that he needed to do so. He did not. He waited until April to actually send a two-page letter that only requested six years of Trump's taxes and only asked for a handful of his limited liability corporations. If you want to actually do the job on this, you need much more. You need a wider range of information, you need more years, and you need to more aggressively go after it. There have been all kinds of articles written in Slate, in the New York Times, in Politico that have laid out the actual way to go after these taxes. The congressman has ignored all of those. New York State has essentially offered to hand him the state returns. The
1: state returns that are different from the federal returns that, that he's going after.
0: Neil... Seems uninterested in taking those, and there was a terrific piece in the American Prospect in March that sort of was a light bulb for me. If Neil goes after the way that Trump files his taxes, what he's doing is he's opening up an entire can of worms about how the the uh, CEO class of this country handles their taxes. Mm. The CEO class are Richard Neal's donors. Neil does not want to go after Trump's taxes because it would open up a real conversation about the ways in which the super rich in this country get away and get around tax laws with the help of congressmen like Neil who serve on the Ways and Means Committee and give them the carve-outs in the tax code that allow them to pay nothing. I
1: I want to ask about those tax laws because some of those you wrote about in a a specific piece just about... um, uh, I guess the free file the free file system, which we're all supposed to have access to, if we uh, are filing or if we make less than sixty-six thousand dollars a year. Um, y- you wrote about why it's so hard to find the free file system.
0: <laughs> it's an amazing story. Um, so about a dozen years ago, the government was thinking about joining, the, th- you know, three dozen other modern democracies around the world that offer, um a free file system for taxes, and the technology was getting so good that they could essentially send you the forms filled out already. Because the government already has all the information. Filling out taxes is really just an honesty check, you know, in a lot of ways. They've already got all of your forms. So it would not be that complicated of a step to send it to us like that. Well, if your TurboTax and H&R Block you start to freak out at that idea because that's how you make all of your money. So what they said to the government was, how about if we take that off your hands? We will administer a free file a system for you if you make under $66,000. What a great $2. idea. Exactly. Have
1: the, have the people who, who have a vested interest in not making it simple yes. create the free file system.
0: And, and Congress says, wonderful. Something the government doesn't have to do, we will outsource it to you. The program, not surprisingly, is a disaster. Um, it essentially works to upsell you to um, to expensive products you don't actually need. It does not do a good job of guarding your most personal information. Um, and TurboTax and H&R Block do everything that they can to hide it from the public all the way down to... Um, putting code on their site and buying Google AdWords to try and block you from finding it. Mm. Um, So Elizabeth Warren has said it's a mess. The consumer groups around the country have said it's a mess. Even the IRS's own public advocate has said it's a mess. Richard Neal, however, in April, called himself a longtime champion of this program, and he inserted language into something that he uh, called... The Taxpayer First Act that codified this deal with HR Block and TurboTax forever. It put it into law that said the IRS will never, they would be prohibited from ever offering a free file system of their own. This, you know, not surprisingly, is the number one political priority of TurboTax and HR Block lobbyists in Washington. Not surprisingly, they give Richard Neal tens of thousands of dollars. He sneaks this right into the law for them.
1: I guess I wonder. So it's pay you know, to play. The, the, it's uh, absolute pay to play. There's, so there's Richard Neal, and he's a he's a a long time uh, a long time congressman who has his fans. He has a strong base of support in Springfield. He actually he had so he didn't have a a, a general election challenger like you were saying, but he did have a, a pretty strong primary challenger in Tahira Amatul Wadud. Um, going into the September primary, and she got cru- he crushed her. Um, and I just I wonder,, um, you know, if this is true that that uh, that Neil is, uh, you know, getting his money from people that that his constituents don't like, spending his money in ways that his constituents don't like, you know, is there really I mean, is he just so entrenched that there's no way to um, to to vote him out of office?
0: He crushed her because he spent $3.3 million on, on his campaign and she was able to raise about $130,000. Um, so, he, you know, that's about 30 to one. Um, he just took over the, the airwaves in Springfield in August and September. Um, and that was that, um, the money that he raises from these, uh, corporations essentially serve as the suit of armor that ward off most challengers, uh, Tahirah was uh, brave and courageous to stand up and take him on, and she did a great job. I mean, it's, it's not easy to do, and she got 30% of the vote with $130,000. I would say that that's a pretty effective campaign. Um, but it is hard to do because the money insulates him uh, from the voters. You're right.
1: Um, I mean, and I, I should say that, you know, there was some speculation that, that, uh, that you were going to run for this seat. I mean, is that something that you're actively considering?
0: I mean I'm a journalist I'm not a politician um but you know um I would prefer these questions to be about him I mean for me these questions are about how our congressman raises money and where he's getting it from and what he's doing in return I think that it's, you know, less about me than it's about a democracy that's completely broken, about a campaign finance system that's warped, and it's about a congressman who, you know, frankly, is so entrenched and so deep in the Washington mud that he can't even see straight anymore and, you know, recognize how swampy he's become. Um, What he's doing by trying to raise questions about whether I'm running against him, is a dodge because he doesn't want to actually answer those questions. Um, I'm a journalist, and I like getting answers to the questions I pose. Clearly, he is a little bit nervous of these questions uh, that are being asked. And, you know, if it comes down to a campaign being necessary to uh, hold him hold him down and get uh, some answers, um, a lot of people have asked me to uh, consider it, and I will consider it. Um, but I think that we need a democracy that works for the public interest and not the special interest, and I don't think we actually have that right now.
1: Um, Just to also get into kind of the main body of your work, which is gerrymandering, um, can you talk to us a a little bit about um, kind of where we are right now in the country in terms of um, you know, will the Supreme Court actually look at at, at um, gerrymandering? Will it will it weigh in? Are the are you know? Might we get another ruling like we had in Pennsylvania, where the, the right. lines get drawn between elections? Or um, you know, w- you know, what are the states that you're looking at right now?
0: This is a fascinating moment for gerrymandering in this country, and I realize that as I say that sentence, all of your audience has just fallen asleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wrote a book uh, with the title that I will say on here is Rat Eft that um, talked about how the Republicans used redistricting as a path back to power and as a path, frankly, to insulate themselves from from electoral challenges um, in the last redistricting after the 2010 census. And a lot of amazing things have happened since then. You've seen maps in a lot of the states that I wrote about in Ohio and Michigan and North Carolina and Wisconsin um, a fall in federal courts as unconstitutional partisan gerrymanders. Um, as you noticed, in uh, Pennsylvania, you had the uh, state uh, Supreme Court there uh, call the congressional map that consistently elected 13 Republicans and five Democrats, even when Democrats won you know 100,000 more votes Republicans would get 72% of the seats. I mean, it was absolutely outrageous. And the state, the Supreme Court there, ordered a new map. And back in November, it it suddenly elected nine Democrats and nine Republicans, which is about what Pennsylvania ought to do. Um, So there are right now, um, you have had federal courts um, take those maps in Ohio, North Carolina, Wisconsin and Michigan and overturned them. And then there's a single U.S. House district in Maryland that was also overturned. Um, and the Maryland and the North Carolina cases are all the way at the U.S. The Supreme Court. And what we don't know is whether John Roberts and, and Brett Kavanaugh, who appear to be the two key voices on this, if they're open to trying to solve this problem. Um, In the past, Roberts has called a lot of the social science behind this, he's called it gobbledygook, um, and he's not been really interested in having the the Supreme Court become the arbiter of when there's too much politics in a political map. Um, The question really is whether the voluminous mounting evidence of 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 partisan intent, whether the fact that the technology these days is so surgical and precise that it can essentially determine electoral outcomes for a decade, and whether all of these lower federal courts saying, we think this is a serious problem and that it's time to do something about it, and we think we know what it is, um, we're able to weigh all of this evidence and come to a conclusion will that turn Roberts' mind around? And is Kavanaugh convincible? And we ought to have answers on that next month.
1: Yeah, well, great. Well, um, David, thank you so much for for coming in to to chat. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. And don't forget to visit us at valleyadvocate.com.